Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on September 14, 2014. First off, I'd like to think you're all coping and coping uh, and getting by with the uh, incredible prices of everything and the basics, of course, in the stores. And I've told you for years to get Agenda 21 through, which is a millennium project, which is sustainability projects, all the same thing. That all your spending money, your free spending money, would go to bare essentials, and that's where you're getting pushed today through the power of the purse. In other words, that's a big stick indeed. And uh, quite a few years ago, remember, right on the air, where the Federal Reserve chairman had said that uh, the plan for the next ten, fifteen years or more would be uh, inflation per year per annum, so much per annum. And we're, we're living through it as they do it, of course. In other words, they devalue your currency constantly. The currencies are all tied together for the World Bank, the, the Bank for International Settlements and uh, the IMF. And uh, we're run by bankers, of course. Not your local branch around the corner, but the ones uh, that you don't see, and often based in Switzerland and other places like that. But that was always the agenda, very old agenda. And the people accomplished the task. Money is an interesting thing in itself, and uh, it's all run on a, a con, of course, because uh, simple mathematics or arithmetic uh, can be understood by anybody. So when it comes to making something into a science or complicating it, you know you're into a scam right off the bat, and that's exactly what it is. But I hope too that you're all managing to, to get by through all this weather modification. It's routine today. This routine weather modification on a daily basis, standardized stuff as we go through parts of countries that are frying, basically, uh, and other places which are being flooded all the time with, the, as I say, the routine weather modification and the chemical spraying, which they like to call geoengineering, sounds better. And, of course, uh, we're all being geoengineered and bioengineered all the time, too, with the fallout from all of this. And never mind the costs of places like Ontario, where it's going to be very hard this year to find potatoes or any vegetables that haven't rotted in the fields since it's rained pretty well every day since the snow stopped last, last uh, actually stopped last May, I think, uh, and it melted about the 1st of June. But uh, there's been no summer at all here in Ontario. It's been daily, daily rain. You wouldn't, you wouldn't believe it. And night, day and night of rain, rain, rain. Occasional break for an hour or two. And dull skies all the time. And last night, on uh, the 13th of September, it uh, hit uh, the freezing mark on the temperature. So big frost and all the rest of it. Uh, I've never seen that before. Um, but here we are, this is a new normal And we're always going through new normals Which won't even be noticed by the media They won't tell you anything And the weather guys will say nothing about it either uh, And I've noticed, I've kept my own charts To do with uh, <clears throat> the rainfalls and all the rest of it And uh, they're constantly lying about how much rain you get It's quite interesting to live in this this matrix system, isn't it? Uh, most folk, mind you, will not think about it So they, they go from their... Um, climate-controlled homes, to the climate-controlled vehicles, to the climate-controlled workplace, and then back again. They don't notice much at all. And if you ask anybody, they have, they have no memory of last year, which was just a little bit better, not much, and the year before. And it all started in a big time, uh, with the rain, that is, in Ontario, pretty badly, about 2008 or so. 
but the big spraying uh, of the skies started heavily in 1998, in Ontario at least, and across other parts of Canada at the same time. But I understand now, I get photographs from all over the world, and it's in all countries. China gets it now, Thailand's getting it, and uh, it's done with agreements, international agreements at the top, uh, from their bogus governments, or at least the ones that run them. And uh, because it, the governments you see don't run them at all, they don't run the countries. Uh, the countries are all part and parcel of the international uh, corporation business. Uh, they tell the governments what to put through. And at the top of that, you have the big international banking system, which also owns the military industrial complex and everything else underneath it. Masses of companies underneath it, which they actually own outright. Just going to Goldman Sachs, and uh, I can remember quite a few years ago, there was an awfully good uh, documentary. Before the crash came, the last crash came, and a guy was invited into an office, and he sat behind a computer. You weren't allowed to see the screen, but he he saw the uh, Goldman Sachs, and he says, my God, and and they owned all these big military companies underneath it uh, that produce all the weaponry across the planet. Quite the business. And last week I touched upon some of this weaponry in Rise of the Warrior Cop, a book by Radley Balco. Uh, Excellent book to read. I'll read some of it tonight to review it again. Because there's so many points in it uh, that it tells you, uh, it gives you an in-depth look at why it's happening, how it's done, how the the money's channeled to different states and little towns in the middle of nowhere by the federal government. And, of course, you have all the politicians on board because they're all getting uh, under-the-table cash, obviously, for, from the lobbyists to promote all this stuff, the big sales and military equipment to police forces. But it isn't just the U.S., as I say. It's uh, Britain, Canada, and, and other countries, too. Australia's into it big time as well. So, and again, too, I really thought about this after last week's talk because I thought about the... Um, the whole idea. I remember reading years ago, years ago, uh, articles from newspapers to do with, uh, you know, how would they have, how would they maintain order in a peaceful world? Big international meetings about it, and they said, well, the future would, would turn to terrorism, long before nine eleven happened, and uh, and therefore security equipments and and um, uh, anti terrorism. Methods would have to be uh, born, brought into existence, including uh, basically a lot of more hardware for police, etc. Police would have to change their whole outlook on what they were there for, but also mainly the public would have to be trained to accept this new outlook as well, as it was normal. But we've seen that with uh, the masses and masses and masses of movies that came out and still are being churned out with uh, budgets from the Pentagon and elsewhere. With the, the good-looking hero, of course, he always gets a blonde at the end, and he always gets the bad guys too, as he blasts his way with all kinds of hard, heavy hardware through all the bad guys, as he may be everywhere. And the bad guys, remember, uh, are all of you, the citizenry, and that's the sad part about it. You're being trained that this is normal, and you're being trained that you're, you, you'll see it near you eventually as they go rampaging through streets and houses and everything else. It's very sad, but you're trained through an awful lot of fiction. Youngsters think it's fantastic because they like excitement, and they watch, they watch all these movies, lap them up, and in a very simplistic fashion, they want to be just like 
these these robocops, in a sense, with all their gear on, uh, with authority to go out and, and, and just shoot up the places and shoot up people and, and do that kind of thing. Authority really appeals to people who have no discipline. And that's another part I'll, I'll just briefly touch on tonight because I remember reading about uh, the communists, young communist party, and how the communists indoctrinated the young in uh, the Soviet system. It's awfully interesting. And I, and I also read on about the Nazi party for the Hitler Youth and it's very, very similar because Hitler, of course, studied the Soviet system intensely because uh, the Soviet system was held up uh, by the world before World War II. The whole world held up the Soviet system as a, a great new experiment. And, and Ross was to be fascinated by it. They didn't tell you about the massive slaughtering going on of civilians and a whole, whole classes of people being wiped out by the millions. But they, they promoted, oh my goodness, how it pulled itself up from a a peasant agricultural society into this great uh, mechanized industry, industrial society in no time at all. And uh, all the big magazines in the 20s into the 30s were promoting uh, this wonder, wonder thing. And it was being well studied by the West, who was funding it all, of course, again, through the big bankers, as was Adolf Hitler, in fact, being funded by them too. But uh, Hitler copied it too. And, but he did talk about it, he, and, and Hitler had mentioned the, the, the youth. He said, when you have a society uh, where the parents lose their, their discipline over the children, children, he said, have a void. They have a, a lack, a real void. They want a discipline, an, an order, uh, boundaries, in other words. And um, he said, uh, when, they, when they suddenly come into the Hitler youth, just like the, just like the young communists in, in the Soviet system, uh, they, they, they get this respect for their teachers, their leaders who take them out on the field trips and so we be part of them and it's adventurous and all that kind of thing. But they, they, So they, become, they come to respect. So right away they give their will over to the leaders of the teams and they're part of the team, the team, the group, the group, the group. They lose your identity with the group, just like joining a police force, same kind of thing, or a military. Uh, but it's awfully interesting. And those children will grow up to be fanatics for the group and for the idealism that it projects, you see. Very, very interesting indeed. But these are all sciences that have always been known uh, for an awful, awful, well, actually thousands of years by those who uh, helped instruct governments, advisors. Now, in such systems, those same youth are indoctrinated into shopping out or ratting out their parents uh, if they're politically incorrect or they hear them at the table or whatever saying something against the dominant regime. Uh, and uh, the children in, in the, the Nazi system would rat out their parents. Same in the Soviet system. If you did that, you were well rewarded as well. You were really brought into the fold, made you feel that you were somebody special. And because of you'd, you'd already shown your allegiance, total allegiance to the state to such an extent, you could, could get uh, into the secret services and things like that. You could meet a uh, part of the secret police, for instance, eventually trained for that, and you go into that, and then you could go into different branches of it, torturing, whatever it happened to be, and you had that ability to, to turn off any emotions uh, completely and lose your emotions because you saw yourself as part of the team of us against them, 
And that goes with all militaries, that goes with all police forces, more so and more so today as they ramp up the anti-terror campaigns everywhere and the propaganda internally. And getting back to, to last week's talk, I talked about Rise of the War Cop. Now, in Rise of the War Cop, uh, that's a very important part of the training of the policemen. A lot of these young guys coming in now are the generation brought up on video games that desensitized them to killing, for instance, and, and uh, they have no problems of locking on a target and shooting at all. Before, it was very difficult. That's why these games were invented for the military, first of all, uh, to, to try uh, and desensitize them. Most people are averse to... To, to, to shooting people they don't know And uh, that was always a problem with military in different wars They did big studies in the Civil War, America, Civil War And they found about 15% of the people actually uh, had their rifles fired on the battlefield When they picked up the rifles from the dead and so on It's not a normal thing to shoot people you don't know and uh, and just other factors too The more dissimilar they look to you The easier it becomes to an extent because it's easier to dehumanize someone who looks very, very different. But but you find, too, uh, that uh, this is a common enough thing. World War II, big, big studies again, into how many folk would actually shoot at the enemy and kill them. And uh, statistics were done. And then they worked hard after that, after World War II, to find ways to desensitize troops. And they came up with the idea of, of uh, early video games, to desensitize them, where you're into a game factor. Um, the whole idea is to get from A to B or A to Z and just kill as many of these little things that come along your way. And that's how you start off until the little things become more humanoid, until they are human looking completely, and you just shoot, 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 and kill, kill, kill. You have a generation bred specifically for today's ongoing perpetual war and also to go into the military and into the police forces as well, especially in the U.S. And it's rising in Britain as well, big time. And it's going to cross the whole so-called civilized world. This is the agenda. And I thought about all of that, and I thought about, too, about um, a very good documentary that came out. Uh, it's, it's called Camp 14, Total Control Zone. Uh, it was directed by Mark Weiss, and it was a German production, but it's done in English. And uh, it's about a, a young guy, I think he's about 30 now, perhaps. But he was born inside a prison camp in North Korea, Camp 14. That was his world, and that's all he knew was Camp 14. And... Uh, what happens, I mean, it was, it was all these simpler rules, simp- very simple rules. You don't talk to women or instant execution. You don't do this, don't steal food, instant execution. Don't Whatever it was, it was always instant execution, which they actually did all the time. And they'd bring the whole camp out to witness executions to get the message across constantly over and over and over. But if you're a good worker at whatever you did, uh, and this guy's dad, apparently, was a machinist with a lathe in the metal shop. Uh, because he was a good worker, he was given the privilege of of having a wife, but he could only see her five times a year. However, um, uh, over the years, she conceived two children, two boys, 
and uh, it was quite interesting to see what happened uh, there because to us it's unconceivable. It's stuff of fiction, really, isn't it? To, to, to people in the West, it's so out of their normal uh, understanding. But this camp was brutal. All these camps were brutal for political prisoners. And to get into the camp, in fact, uh, in this interview, this, this incredible documentary, it's got to be seen, Camp 14, Total Control Zone by Mark Weiss. The interview as well, two ex, one ex-guard who uh, admitted to shooting people out of hand when he felt like it and just picking women who came in and having sex with them. If they got pregnant, the camp guards got them pregnant, they'd get the women and they'd tie them up onto trees and beat them until they, they died. That, that, there was just simply no retribution uh, of, of any kind whatsoever. Brutality ran the whole system. And it's probably still going that camp. But anyway, uh, <laughs> another one was a guy from the secret police who arrested people and put them in the camps too and shot them out of hand as well. Uh, he also defected eventually for a better life for himself, no doubt. I don't know if it was out of guilt or anything else, or he just simply wanted more of the better life. But these two people, the, the, the officer and the guard, were very candid about what they did to the prisoners. It was quite amazing to hear it. And rather than just simply condemn them out of hand, I looked at them, I watched them, studied them, and realized this can be done anywhere, in any country in the, the world. Believe it or not, it can be done in any country at all in the world. Uh, you better remember that. Never, ever, ever forget that. You know. Now, this um, young guy that the story's about, who gives an interview about it, uh, you can see he's, he's psychologically damaged big time. But uh, he was born in it, in, in the camp. His name is Shin Dong Hayuk, uh, and, uh, or Hayuk, it's called. H-U-Y-K. And, uh, all he knew were, were the rules. Now, the rules were, again, that he must shop his parents if they were politically incorrect. Uh, the parents, the, and again, was, his mum, he saw him all the time. The dad only came uh, five times a year for one night. And um, mum had to shop the sons if they were incorrect. That was drummed into them. There was to be no emotion really shown there. He didn't know what love was. He had no, didn't know what affection was. He had no uh, feelings for his mother, really, uh, or, or his brother. And he did really awful, awful jobs, um, including working in mines by the age of about 10 or so, or 12, uh, coal mines and things. They froze pretty well in the winter. Uh, they were kept on a starvation diet, same diet day after day, year after year. And uh, horrific, horrific conditions. What was interesting too, one of the guards said that it doesn't matter how much she beat them and so on. It's just that they didn't commit suicide. The resolution to survive became, to become strong just to survive. Because they're very simple rules. Do this or we kill you. It was so simple. But um, eventually at the age of 14, I think it was, his brother had run away from his plant it was a massive camp, this, with barbed wire everywhere, electrified fencing. But the young uh, brother had run away, and he he came back to his home, 
his mum to ask advice and uh, she had put a little bit of grains of food by. She was packing it up, but um, Shin Dong Hyuk, the movie was about him, the documentary, uh, he said that he was watching through the window. Uh, and what he did then was go and report because he, he heard them say, he thought he, he thought he heard his mother and, and, his, and the brother discussing getting out and running off away, getting out from the wire and getting away. So he went to report them. He felt nothing at the time either. You better remember that. This can be done anywhere, folks. But he reported them to his teacher. And the next thing he knew was uh, he was lifted the next day and driven off blindfolded to uh, the the prison camp inside the the big compound. And uh, he was tortured and and beaten severely, so badly that you'll see on the, the documentary his arms are almost shaping. They, they eventually pulled him up to the roof, basically, with ropes uh, tied to his wrists and to his ankles. They put hooks through him, and the scars are on his body. One was even through his, the, the pubic area, and it ripped to the skin and so on. They put fires underneath him, uh, roasted them his back because all scar tissue and so on. And uh, apparently the, uh, the teacher had not told them why he just didn't let the child or something and he just said that it was a bad child go and punish him but uh, he didn't know that his father had also been lifted uh, and was in a part of the camp as well and he was getting tortured too and that went on for about I think seven months but uh, you can't believe this until you hear it and you, you can see the pain this guy trying to even talk about it fascinating fascinating story indeed but the Eventually, he he uh, was get brought back to the camp, and some old guy in the prison, uh, another prisoner, had managed to save him and patch him up best he could. Uh, I guess straighten out the bones to let him set as best he could. Then he was taken back to the camp, and that's when he saw his dad and, uh, for the first time. He he'd been in the camp as well. They were brought immediately to the front line of a, a, an execution, and the ones that were being executed were his mum. And the brother, that's what they did, and they saw them being killed. He felt resentment at his mother uh, for causing all of this, rather than, you know, he, he's too young to understand the circumstances. All he knew was his camp. This was, this was his world. He didn't know there was any world outside of it. I mean, you, you can literally bring people up, and this is all there is. This is it. This is your world. Here's the rules. Follow them or we'll kill you. We'll beat you or kill you. Uh, utter brutality. Utter brutality. No kindness shown, nothing shown. Kindness will be punished, that kind of thing. And eventually he goes through the story of how a newcomer came into the camp, told him about a world outside, and how he did barbecued chicken and things like that, and he couldn't imagine this, and the two of them tried to break out eventually through the electric wire. Uh, the newcomer uh, went over, hit the wire first, got electrocuted, got killed, but the wire was pulled down his body. He crawled over the body, and he got his legs electrocuted, crawling over. They're all scarred as well, because they were severely burned. And he got away, eventually. He got into China. They sent him back to Seoul in South Korea. And from there, he was picked up, his story was picked up by reporters, and eventually they, they took him on a tour 
uh, for some organizations. They're going about cruelty across the world. Uh, but uh, you could tell this, this young guy will never, ever have anything that we could consider normal. His, his mind can't adapt uh, to the modern world. What was interesting to me at the end was when he was talking about his soul. He said um, he wanted eventually to go back to where the camp is or was, if it was, in other words, maybe down the road in the future, to farm or something, just to be there. That was home. That was home to him. And he said, uh, he said the only time he had purity, it was a kind of double speak, he kind of wanted to be in the camp to an extent. He said, I want the purity I had when I was in the camp, purity of the soul. And I think it would be very difficult to get proper translation, but because it's a, a, an explanation given over in a voiceover in English. But um, I think what he was referring to was things were so simple. He mentioned that, that, that there were simple rules, a few of the simple rules, and it didn't have to do any thinking. And remember, that, that immediately I thought of uh, what uh, Charles Galton Darwin said in his book, The Next Million Years, the people won't need to do thinking. All their thinking will be done for them by the state. That's what's here now today, where you're given all your opinions. But anyway, he said that, um, this young guy said, uh, he didn't do any, have to do any thinking. He had no emotions either. Uh, now he's got a burden of emotions because he didn't know what affection was before this. He didn't know that... People could be kind or nice, and this is a, a new thing. It kind of shattered them. And he probably has some guilt, too, that he'd survive, perhaps, and others. And plus, he thinks his dad probably was, was shot after they found out that he himself had escaped, Shandong. The son had escaped, and they probably shot the father. But a hellish existence. You don't hear much of this in the news as they tell you to start here hating Arabs because they make the women wear veils over their faces. So, so we can play left, right and centre by all the corruption that's going on in propaganda, scientific propaganda. But these camps are, are horrific and this is the 21st century. Uh, man doesn't advance at all. And believe you me, under the, the thin disguise that you have of of civilization. You have the same people who will become the prison guards, the torturers, they're all there already, a lot of them are already in uniform. Doesn't take much. They, they know how to turn the switches on these guys and get them working uh, into the next mode if they want to. We saw what happened with extraordinary rendition. It's happening all over the place, still happening. Wherefore, we're just kidnapped from Canada or the US, wherever. Uh, whisked off to another country, tortured and so on. Lots of them never come back, by the way, because there's such a mess at the end. They can't let them go loose in the streets and tell them what happened to them. They kill them. So the West is doing just the same kind of thing, folks, using the same kind of uh, torture techniques. Uh, and uh, it's just horrific. We've already seen some things come out of camps. Uh, and we like to forget that because we've been taught to, to to look at the positive side and ignore the negative side, the thing that makes us feel unpleasant. And unfortunately, that works with most folk awfully well. That's why nasty things eventually come upon you all. And that's why I come up with things like the Soviet story, another one you must watch, things like that. 
because you would understand there's no such thing as a human evolution as such, the propaganda they give us, that somehow we're more civilized today. Believe you me, it's utter rubbish and nonsense. An interesting thing that this same young fella, this Korean, said, the Shindong Hyuk, he said, um, he said that, because he's still lost, obviously, this young guy will always be lost between worlds, and he said that uh, all we had to worry about in the camps was food, obeying the rules and having food to eat, because they never had enough. Uh, he said, but here, and he's talking about South Korea, uh, he says, everyone talks about money, money, money. Same in the U.S. and everywhere else, money, money, money. Uh, and they've got to have money to get the food and things like that. To, 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 you could see his frustration as he's talking about this. To him, it seemed all crazy. And it is crazy because it's another form of slavery, whether you like it or not. That's what it is. You know, the people at the very top get awfully rich off your labor, as Mark said. And um, some of the things that Mark said simply were already understood by economists and the top economists and John Stuart Mill and all these guys. Uh, and it's true. All, all true wealth comes from labor, the production itself, those who make the things not from the guys who simply have the cash to own the things or own the factories. Today it's even worse than that. It's holding companies that own thousands of companies underneath them and uh, they don't even care about uh, how their profits are coming in. They just tell the guys who own the companies, who run the companies, the CEOs, uh, bring in more profits. And that's why everything you buy is garbage today. It's breakable junk garbage. We have cut corners to maximize every, every bit of profit. Nothing gets cheaper, it just gets cheaper made, that's all. And it's not meant to last. And eventually we'll get to the stage, and we're getting to it, by the way, where things that you buy are literally uh, um, non-functioning when they're brand new, because it, it's made of junk. Mind you, they've also trained the public to accept junk, a gradual tra- training process, until people literally think uh, buying cheap plastic uh, rubbish for or vacuum cleaners or, or about half, the, half a vehicle, a car, a brand new car, uh, with all its junky little cheap uh, chips in it, it's all quite normal. And there'll be a grand of time to get a, a new chip in here, there, everywhere. There's just chips everywhere. It's just it's incredible how they've trained the public to gradually, over a span of 40 years, to accept junk. But anyway, as I say, economics is another form of slavery. And Charles Galton Darwin and his book and other other ones too, Brussels, all these boys, go into the same thing, that the power of the purse is very mighty, backed up with law, the coercion to obey and pay up this and pay up that for new fees, taxes, whatever it happens to be. Uh, and you can just jack up the prices of food, etc., and make it more difficult to survive buying meat. That's another thing too, this, 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 uh, this thing at Camp 14, uh, meat was a, pretty well non-existent for them, except for the rats that they could catch in their in their little huts, and they'd they'd cook them and eat them. That's all the protein they could get to hold. Uh, it's interesting to me to see the massive propaganda coming out today. With uh, oh, the, the meat's going to be scarce for most folk in the future, and they mean most folk, not all of the big ones at the top, and the civil servants and bureaucrats and so on. 
or the cops or the military and so on, they'll get the meat all right. But uh, for the peasantry, it's to be down to eating crickets and munched insects and all this rubbish. The BBC apparently just did a three-part series on this to make sure you get an idea of how wonderful it will be with all these proteins we'll have from all these different things that you wouldn't think of eating before. We're, we're, we're trained like, it's so darn easy, we're trained by our masters, aren't we? And uh, and you've always got the greenies, uh, a generation of greenies born and brainwashed to be part of a movement to save the world, save the planet, to promote all. And uh, although their leaders, mind you, will be eating plenty of meat at the top, I can guarantee you that. But so the little you know airheads at the bottom will be dutifully eating their their rice and their soya and and uh, all the rest of their the junk without any protein. Now we'll get back to the the war on drugs, as I say, which is, I knew a long time ago, many, many, many years ago, I knew it, that this was uh, partly an excuse to create an internal army in, in the world, across the world. And remember, presidents and prime ministers don't say something like, declare, or de- don't declare a war on anything. And, and unless they mean that as a war on something, remember wars often suspend uh, rights, constitutions, things like that. And this is the reason for it. This is part of the reason for it. But you must get uh, the re- you must get some kind of uh, excuse for getting a, a massive internal army built up, because down the road, and they knew back in the days of Nixon when he he started up the FEMA bunch and so on, they they knew. And because the they, they work on behalf of the masters, we above them. As they went to globalism and economies went down and all the rest of it, they'd have eventual riots down the road. And they want internal armies to deal with it. But what would they use them for in the meantime? That's an acceptable excuse. Well, a war on drugs would do. Now, I've done talks on the radio, on different uh, radio shows, on the farce of the, the, the drugs, because you have the CIA uh, came out, with, and, and the Pentagon came out with uh, Oliver North, Colonel Oliver North, during the, the inquiries into the drugs for guns scandal that came out there, where they were literally arming other rebel groups and so on with with, with guns in Latin America. But they were doing an exchange. The, 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 the currency they were using was from another country, and they were getting it, getting uh, basically heroin and so on, and and drugs, and selling it on the streets of America for their black budgets to American children uh, to buy these guns to give to their, their, uh, their basically their so-called rebel forces in Latin America and elsewhere in the world. This is still going on today, folks. It hasn't stopped. Uh, but uh, I also read another article by an ex-Special Forces guy who gave a fantastic interview in a newspaper how he bumped into another ex-Forces guy who was helping run the drugs into America? Well, this particular guy who was writing the call or was the column was about was in the Coast Guard, trying to stop drugs coming in. <clears throat> so here's two ex-forces guys: one with the Coast Guard, one helping run the drugs in for the CIA and, and to the U.S. and uh, and they met up in some little exotic place and exchanged <laughs> occupations, basically. Anyway, the guy who exposed in the paper, and the Coast Guard guy. Uh, he eventually was killed, of course. And that's what happens in real life. So in other words, the war on drugs is something to use the cops on, 
with you know a reason to recruit more and more to militarize them and give them all these heavy military equipments. Uh, at the same time, the Pentagon and, and your tax money is putting out movies, exciting movies for the young, especially. But adults watch them as well, and uh, always against terrorism to get you see to make you think that's so necessary now that we have all this uh, massive internal militarization of police forces. And Britain's the same way as well. So it's uh, it's training the public on that score as well. But first you must need a reason for having them. And so they used a, a war on drugs, which are being shipped in. The biggest lots are being shipped down by your own country or your own, your own uh, governments that are way above them. But here's getting back to this book, Rise of the Warrior Cop. And uh, it says here, the 2000s, uh, a whole new war. It says that Betty Taylor still remembers the night it all hit her. As a child, Taylor had always been taught that police officers were the good guys. Of course, she's seen all the movies and everything else too, and all the dramas and television. She learned to respect law enforcement, as she puts it, all the time, all the way. She went on to become a cop because she wanted to help people. They all say that. And um, I say, boy, scouts, you know, they want to help ladies across the road and stuff like that. And it says, and that's what cops did. Uh, she wanted to fight sexual assault, particularly predators who take advantage of children. To go into law enforcement to become one of the good guys seemed like the best way to accomplish that. By the late 1990s, she'd risen to the rank of detective in the Sheriff's Department of Lincoln County, Missouri. A sparsely populated uh, farming community about an hour northwest of St. Louis. She eventually uh, started a sex crimes unit within the department, but it was a small department with a tight budget. She couldn't get the money she needed. Uh, she was forced to give speeches and write her own uh, proposals to keep her program operating. What troubled her was, well, the sex crimes unit had to find uh, funding on its own. The SWAT team was always flush with cash. The SWAT team, the drug guys, uh, they always had money. Taylor said, they, always, uh, they were always state and federal grants for drug raids. There was always funding through asset forfeiture. That's a big part of it, by the way, because they copied this from the Soviet system. I hope you understand that. Uh, everything's happening in the U.S. and Britain and elsewhere. It was all copied from the Soviet system. The cops who would, would raid people's homes uh, would, would steal everything in the place, and they could put it up for auction, but they split it amongst themselves usually and help fund their own departments as well. Uh, so it was very lucrative to them to do as many raids as possible, same as it is in the States. But it said here that um, they always had money, and they got all the big grants from the, the, the federal grants and so on, and the state. Uh, there was funding through asset forfeiture, uh, Taylor never understood that disparity. When you think about the color, uh, the collateral effects of a sex crime, of having to affect an entire family, entire community, it didn't make any sense. The drug users weren't really harming anyone but themselves. Even the dealers, she found that much of the time, were just people with little money just trying to get by. And she said the SWAT team eventually co-opted her as a member. As the only woman in the apartment, she was asked to go along on drug raids in the event there was any children inside. The perimeter team uh, would go in first. They'd throw all of the adults on the floor until they had secured the building, sometimes the children too. And by the way, they put gun cell at the heads of the children as well, but that's the standard in all countries now. And it said uh, then they'd put the, the children in a room by themselves and the search team would go in. They'd come uh, to me, point to where the children were and say, uh, you deal with them. 
Taylor would then stay with the children until family services arrived, at which point they'd be placed with a relative. And generally, they'd switch them off to, to the homes now, of course. just big money, too. Tara's moment of clarity came during a raid on an, uh, on an uh, autumn evening, November 2000. Narcotics investigators had made controlled drug uh, by a few hours earlier. So that was a, it was a sting operation and were laying plans to raid the suspect's home. The drug buy was in town, uh, not at the home, Taylor says, but they'd always raid the house anyway. <laughs> uh, they could never just arrest the guy on the street, which of course they could. But they never did it. And uh, they always had to kick down uh, doors. They liked to kick down doors. But just three hours uh, between the drug buy and the raid, the police hadn't done much surveillance at all. SWAT uh, team would often avoid uh, raiding the house if they knew there were children inside. But Taylor was troubled by how little effort they put into uh, working out or finding out that kind of information. Three hours is nowhere near enough time to investigate the suspect to find out who might be uh, inside the house. The afternoon that the police uh, had bought drugs from the stepfather of two children, ages eight and six, both were in the house at the time of the raid. The stepfather wasn't. They did their thing, Taylor says, everybody on the floor, guns and yelling. Then they put the two children in the bedroom, uh, did their search, and then sent me to take care of the children. Made her way inside to see them. When she opened the door, the eight-year-old girl assumed a defense posture, putting herself between Taylor and her little brother. She looked at Taylor and said, half fearful, half angry, what are you going to do to us? Taylor was shattered. Here I come in with all my SWAT gear on, like Darth Vader, you know, dressed in armour from head to toe. And this little girl looks up at me, and her only thought is to defend her little brother, I thought. How can we be the good guys when we come into the house looking like this, screaming and pointing guns at the people they love? How can we be the good guys when a little girl looks upon, looks upon me and wants to fight me? And for what? What were we accomplishing with all of this? Absolutely nothing. Taylor was later appointed police chief of the small town of Winsfield, uh, Missouri. Uh, Winfield was too small for its own SWAT team, even in the 2000s, but Taylor said she'd have quit before she ever created one. Good policing work has nothing to do with dressing up in black and breaking into houses in the middle of the night. By the way, it's the same thing they do world over. That's what the Stasi did in East Germany. Uh, that's what they did do in North Korea. You hear the guards talking about it busting in the middle of the night. And it says... Um, it's breaking the house in the middle of the night. And the men, uh, mentality changes when they put on the SWAT team, when they put on their gear. I remember a, a guy I was good friends with, it, was, uh, he, it just completely changed him. The us versus them mentality takes over. You see that mentality in regular patrol officers too. But it's much, much worse in the SWAT uh, t- program. There's, they're more concerned with drugs than they are with innocent bystanders because when you get into that mentality, there are no innocent people. It's really us against them. Them's all of you, the whole population out there. You're special. You're in your Darth Vader suit and all your armor. You're black, you're menacing. You're, you're covered, your gear's always black and menacing. It says there's us and there's the, the enemy. The children and dogs are always the easiest casualties because they can't fight back, right? Quite some, but uh, it's so sad. It's so sad what's allowed to happen. And, and this book too, by the way, you got to get this book because it was through so many of the botched raids where uh, they were using informants who simply made up the stories on people and they would do dozens and dozens of raids regardless if the, if the informant was lying. 
and and it, it busts and smash up all these houses, dozens and dozens of them, some of these teams, uh, before they'd, they'd eventually get rid of that particular informer. Uh, there was one sad case um, where they busted you know, someone's home, it was the wrong address, that happens often too, especially when they have maybe uh, 10 raids that night to do. I mean, this is how much what they accomplished. You, know, you understand, when you create any government bureaucracy, they must start to feel, uh, it might get their importance up there, or they might get disbanded. It doesn't matter what they get the start up for. Uh, and uh, as bureaucracies are the same. And they must expand and expand and expand to show to show their bosses how important and necessary they are. So they create more work than you can believe. But there was one botched one, as I say, and uh, they came in, threw the guy on the floor, uh, middle of the night, threw the, the child on the floor, 11-year-old boy, and uh, put guns to their heads and all the rest of it. And I think the guy's wife was there too. All had guns to their head, and the one that was holding the little boy on the floor who wasn't moving, uh, fired his shotgun. Point black hit the guy's, the boy's head, blew his head off. This is happening across civilized countries, and you've been taught that it's normal. There was no drugs there. It was a mistake, wrong address, the whole bit, which it happens frequently. Now, the senators all know this in the U.S., but they're all for this program because their bosses above them tell them, Plus, they're getting big money from the lobby groups, from the military-industrial complex to sell all the tanks and everything else they're getting there. The heavy military equipment. Because as I said earlier on, years ago they said, what are they going to do when they run out of wars? Well, they would start long beforehand, before they run out of wars, preparing for internal terrorism to sell equipment to the, to, to, to the governments. And they've been doing it through... Cons like this. And there's massive federal funding. Anyway, it says by the mid-1990s, the Byrne Grant, B-Y-R-N-E Grant Program, uh, Congress had started in 1988, had pushed police departments across the country to prioritizing drug crimes over other investigations. We're applying for grants. Departments are awarded for, uh, with funding for statistics such as the number of overall arrests, the number of warrants served, or the number of drug seizures. Those priorities then are passed down to police officers themselves and are reflected in how they are valued, reviewed, and promoted. Perversely, actual uh, success in reducing crime is generally not rewarded with federal money on the presumption that the money ought to go where it's needed, uh, or most need high crime areas. So the grants reward police departments for making lots of easy arrests, that is, low-level drug offenders, and lots of seizures regardless of size, and for serving lots of warrants. When it comes to tapping into federal funds, whether any of that actually reduces crime or makes the community safer is irrelevant, and in fact successfully fighting crime could hurt a department's ability to rake in federal money. Money, money, money. It all comes down to money, doesn't it, eh? But the most harmful product of the Burn Grant program may be its creation of hundreds of regional and multi-jurisdictional narcotics task forces. That term narcotics task force pops up frequently in the case of studies and horror stories throughout this book. There's a reason for that. For the Reagan and Bush administration had set up a number of drug task forces in border zones, the Burn Grant program established similar task forces all across the country. They seem particularly likely to pop up in rural areas that didn't yet have a paramilitary police team, uh, what few were left. 
The task forces are staffed with local cops drawn from the police agencies in the jurisdictions where the task force operates. Some squads loosely report to a state law enforcement agency, but oversight tends to be minimal to non-existent. Because their funding comes from federal government and whatever asset forfeiture proceeds they reap from their investigations, local officials can't even control them by cutting their budget. This organizational uh, structure makes some task forces virtually unaccountable and certainly not accountable to any public official in the region they they cover. As a result, we have roving squads of drug cops loaded with uh, SWAT gear who get uh, more money if they conduct more raids, make more arrests and seize more property, and they are virtually immune to accountability if they get out of line. In 2009, the Justice Department attempted a cost-benefit analysis of these task forces but couldn't even get to the point of crunching the numbers. The task forces weren't producing any numbers to crunch. Not only were were data insufficient to estimate what task forces accomplished, the report read, data were inadequate to even tell the task forces did what they did for routine work. Not surprisingly, the proliferation of heavily armed task forces uh, that have little accountability and are rewarded for making lots of busts has resulted in some abuse. It's quite amazing, really. One of the most notorious scandals involving the task forces came in the form of a massive drug sting in the town of Tulia, Texas, July 23rd, 1999. Task force donned black ski mask caps and full swap gear to conduct a series of coordinated pre-dawn raids across uh, Tulia. By 4 a.m., 40 black people, 10% of Tulia's black population, and six whites were in handcuffs. The Tulia Sentinel declared, We do not like these scumbags doing business in our town. They are cancer in our community. It's time to give them a major dose of chemotherapy behind bars. The paper followed up with the headline, Tilia's Streets Cleared of Garbage. The race were based on the investigation work of Tom Coleman, a sort of freelance cop who, it would later be revealed, had simply invented drug transactions that had never occurred. They don't investigate their own crooks within their departments. The first trials resulted in convictions based entirely on the credibility of Tom Coleman. The defendants received long sentences for those who were arrested but still awaiting trial. Plea bargains that let them avoid prison time began to look attractive, even if they were innocent. Coleman was even named Texas Lawman of the Year. But there were some curious details about the raids. For such a large drug bust, the task force hadn't recovered any actual drugs, or any weapons for that matter. And it wasn't for a lack of looking. The task force cops had all but destroyed the interior of the homes they raided. Then some cases started falling apart. One woman Coleman claimed sold him drugs could prove she was in Oklahoma City at the time. Coleman had described another woman as six months pregnant, and she wasn't. Another suspect uh, proved uh, could prove he was at work during the alleged drug sale. By 2004, nearly all of the 46 suspects were either cleared or pardoned by Texas Governor Rick Perry. The jurisdictions the task force served eventually settled a lawsuit with the defendants for $6 million. In 2005, Coleman was convicted of perjury. He received 10 years of probation and was fined £7,500. This shows you the rackets involved. And these are the characters who are making up stories for their, to get their paychecks. And they just don't care who they pick for it, really. Easy targets, I guess. And another page here, it says here, really interesting, it says, um, the heavy-handed federal enforcement on medical providers wasn't limited to marijuana. 
because we're doing medical marijuana. In the States, we're putting it through as legal uh, for treating people with uh, severe pain. But the state ones were going in and raiding and still arresting the folk who were getting licenses from the different states, independent states. You see. As fears about prescription opioid painkillers started to take root in the media in the early 2000s, the professionals with medical degrees, practices, offices, and patients singled out for allegedly or for prescribing a certain class of drugs. There's still a debate over whether overprescribing these drugs, as defined by drug cops, not other doctors, should even be a crime, and whereas some of the doctors were even overprescribing in the first place. Those questions aside, it's hard to fathom why it would be necessary to send SWAT teams to storm their homes and offices, subjecting their families and patients to the violence and volatility of a typical raid. But it's true, everything's, they're using these teams now for everything, you understand now. You don't, you just, don't just send a policeman to the door to ask a few questions. No, you just send in the teams, smash everyone up and make a big scene. It's just like the movies, you see. And we like movies, don't we? Now, here's a little part here, too. It says, we're going to have our own tank. Keen in uh, New Hampshire, Mayor Kendall Lane whispered to Councilman Mitch Greenwald during December 2011 City Council meeting. We're going to have our own tank. Wow. It wasn't quite a tank, but the quaint town of 23,000 people, home to just two murderers since 1999, had just accepted $285,933 grant from the Department of Homeland Security. Now, that's your tax money, folks. To purchase a Bearcat, which is an eight-ton armoured personnel vehicle made by Lenko Industries, Inc. Since the September 11 attacks, Homeland Security has been handing out anti-terrorism grants like Parade Candy, giving cities and towns across the country funds to buy military-grade armoured vehicles, guns, armour, aircraft and other equipment. Companies like Lenko have thrived, creating yet another class of government hardware contractors and a new interest group to lobby Washington to ensure the process of police militarization continues. It says here that the Department of Homeland Security grants have dwarfed the 1033 program. At the end of 2011, the Center for Investigative Reporting found that Homeland Security had given out at least $34 billion in anti-terror grants since its inception, many of which went to such unlikely terrorism targets as Fargo, North Dakota, Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, and Canyon County, Idaho. Defense contractors that had previously served uh, the Pentagon exclusively, CIA reported, have since shifted their focus to uh, police departments hoping to tap a new homeland security market bounty expected to be worth $19 billion annually by 2014. Police have done with the 2000. Uh, with, with, sort of done with the 1033 program, they'd initially argue that the equipment was necessary just in case they had school shootings or whatever. But in Keene, there was some resistance to the bear cat. It began with one guy, and they, tell, they go through the story and so on. And they, they got their bear cat and all the rest of it, with uh, all of its, it's packed with all kinds of fancy hardware. I think it's even got a 50 cal on it, a uh, machine gun as well. But uh, this is for policing, folks. You, know? you, 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 you wake up, hey? Anyway, this is a, this Mike Clark, 27-year-old handyman Clark, who uh, had a couple of cameras with the Keene police, said that uh, this, he described it as a negative uh, thing. And he read about the Homeland Security grants in the newspaper. Uh, the police are already pretty brutal, he says. 
And it says the last thing we need is, is this big piece of military equipment to make them think they're soldiers. And that's the problem, folks. They put these things on and really feel that they're soldiers now. It's intentional, too. The big boys at the top know what they're doing here. And it says um, they had various town meetings to see if they should use the money for uh, to, to do better policing you know, amongst the public as opposed to militarizing them like this, et cetera, et cetera. But, however, the military bunch uh, always seems to win out because there's big money changes hands probably down to even mayors and all the rest of it, too, I'm sure. That's just my opinion, but uh, that's what happens in real life, folks. But it says here that um, in a, it's a line of argument defenders of militarization use often. Oppose the arming of cops as if they were soldiers, and you must uh, secretly want cops to be killed on the job. That's one of the excuses they'll give. But the video Lenko was using to market the vehicle to police departments didn't exactly emphasize negotiation. This is how they ever, just like the military, they actually have uh, ads specifically for cops, you see. And it says, um, the camera viewpoint in the video was similar to that of a, sh- a shooter video game. The soundtrack was ACDC's uh, Thunderstruck. Cops dressed in camouflage, uh, toted assault weapons, piled in and out of beer- the beer can and took aim at targets from around and behind the vehicle. Uh, they then attached a battering ram to the front of the vehicle, which then used to punch a hole in the front door of a house into which they injected canisters of tear gas. This is the ad. This is the company Lenko wasn't stupid. Uh, chosen images and uh, music used in the video because they felt it would appeal to those police departments in the market for a beer cap. Uh, Dory, Dory O'Meara, 13-year-old resident of the town, uh, told me, uh, Kina is a beautiful place. It's gorgeous and it's safe. We love it here. We just don't want to live in the kind of place where uh, there's an armored personnel carrier parked outside a city hall. It's just not uh, who we are. According to the CIR's research, the Department of Homeland Security gave out $2 billion in grants in 2011, about four times the value of equipment given out through the 1033 program. As with the Burn Cops grants, the DHS grant program also got a big boost in President Obama's 2009 economic recovery package. Uh, much, much, he already put more into it, massive more, because he knows what's coming up down in the future and why they really want all these uh, internal police, which are military. The CIR investigation also found that DHS makes little effort to track how the grants are spent once they've been sent, nor does it track the equipment, how it's used once it's been purchased. And believe you me, there's an awful lot of corruption in amongst the police forces too. <laughs> oh, yeah. so the agency doesn't uh, seem to care if the recipients of the grants are, are places that, that face any tangible threat or terrorism. That's what it tells you it's for a re- different reason. It's, it's totally come. Hence, a city like Fargo, North Dakota, has been able to get its hands on an $8 million in grants, which the police department had used to buy assault rifles, Kevlar helmets, and an armored truck with a rotating turret. Fargo Police Lieutenant Ross Rare attempted to defend the city's armament. It's foolish not to be cognizant of the threats out there, he said, whether it's New York, Los Angeles, or Fargo. But until the day when the next uh, Mohammed Atta casts Richfield's eyes on North Dakota, the department hasn't made uh, much use of its gun fitted armored truck. Uh, it's, it's, it's used mostly for a show of this truck now, including the annual city picnic where police parked it near the Children's Bounty Castle, or Bouncy Castle. But it, it's just astonishing, absolutely astonishing. Uh, but uh, there's a story here too, <laughs> which is kind of comical. It says here that in Maine, in Augusta, Maine, 
where there's fewer than 20,000 people, where an officer hasn't died from gunfire at the line of duty in more than 125 years, police bought eight $1,500 tactical vests in Des Moines, Iowa. Police bought two $180,000 bomb-disarming robots. They all want the toys, you see. And it says, while an Arizona sheriff is now the proud owner of a surplus army tank, Montgomery County, Texas, the sheriff's department owns a $300,000 pilotless surveillance drone like those used to hunt down al-Qaeda terrorists in the remote tribal regions of Pakistan and Afghanistan. A couple of months before the CIA report, the sheriff in Montgomery County had uh, broached the possibility of arming his drone with rubber bullets or possibly tear gas. I remember when that was in the paper. And uh, it says, no matter what we do in law enforcement, somebody's going to question it, but we're going to do the right thing. And I can assure you of that, he said. Five months later, the department made headlines when its Department of Homeland Security funded drone accidentally crashed into its Department of Homeland Security funded beer cat. <laughs> and these guys are going to expertly raid your home and uh, no one's going to get slaughtered, eh? Anyway, the point of what I'm getting across here is that there's a different reason why all this is being promoted. It trains the cops as well, that they're now a military. It doesn't matter if, they, if, if the cops even believe it's for drugs or not. It doesn't matter. They're a military and you're all the enemy and they're going to all be turned loose with all their heavy military equipment. Uh, if there's ever any real riots coming down the pike with uh, the massive inflation, the next bank crash or whatever else comes along. Uh, you're going to really see why they're really there. And just like I mentioned with that uh, Camp 14 total control zone, uh, you'll find that system can be brought on awfully rapidly. Uh, the torturers are all there waiting for the jobs, believe you me, if they're not already in some. And uh, there's no difference to what can be done in North Korea and in your own country, uh, as I say, your own people, whether it's Britain or wherever it happens to be, are doing the extraordinary rendition. And they're whisking people off and torturing them in exactly the same ways they get tortured in total control zone. And they slaughtered the people as well at the end of it rather than have them loose on the streets and getting sued over it. So this kill them. Very simple. Uh, that's civilization as we know it because under the guise of, of uh, our wonderful system, it's as brutal as ever. It's simply more clever in how it, it makes you perceive the whole system, folks. It's more and more clever. But uh, you can see it got reverting right back to, to open the, the raw grossness of it all uh, in, in a very short time, if need be. Believe you me. Sad, sad, sad. Human nature hasn't changed. Really hasn't changed at all. And there's no shortage of folk who'll uh, do the slaughtering uh, and, and for, the, for the government and slaughtering and torturing in any country on this planet, any country on this planet, folks, there's, there's no shortage of the people who will do that and they get into the mindset and, and they'll convince themselves as they're doing it, as they're right to do it. These uh, these people are scum for, 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 for speaking out against the system or whatever it happens to be. And, uh, and, and that's what they use for excuses. It's sad, isn't it? Sad that it's so easy to program people is, is terribly sad. As I say, remember the, 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 that movie um, and the documentary came out from from the prison experiment, uh, Stanford prison experiment, and the movies that made the control factor. You become your job when you put on the uniform. 
doesn't matter what job you're in, you become that darn job. But you put them into a, a uniform of authority, and, and the person literally changes their whole, whole personality. It goes to their head. That's why, that's why police should never be dressing and behaving as military uh, dress and behave. Military are created to go out there and kill people. That's their job, folks. That's their job. That's it. And do you really want that, walking around your streets and busting your homes in the middle of the night, as they're doing, and it's all over the States now. And as I say, you've got to get the book, Rise the Warrior Cop, because believe you me, uh, you just look at the front picture on, on the page there, and this is like something out of Star Wars. I knew when, I, when Star Wars came out, I said, this is for the future. I didn't see it till years later because I didn't want to see it in the first place, but it's pure propaganda. Uh, and you're, you're programmed through the movies, of course, for what's to come. And it's here. Unfortunately, it's here, isn't it? And we get entertained into oblivion through indoctrination, through fiction. Youngsters want to be the guys dressed up like uh, Robocop. You don't have to go searching to find people who will do this or search for torture. They're there, folks. Sad, isn't it? Now remember, too, you're going to make good use of CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com. I've mentioned other uh, good videos over the years that have come out from the ex-Soviet system to show how their system worked and what happened and the atrocities that happened there. You've got to understand this and know it all. Remember, too, you've been trained to avoid pain and seek pleasure. You have been trained deliberately to allow all this to happen. You have been trained and if you can't, I can understand, for instance, Camp 14, a lot of folk will be unable to listen to this guy talking. Uh, it's definitely not an act with them. And uh, uh, a lot of folk will, won't want to hear it. So you probably heard that yourselves, I'm sure, if you discuss things with your friends. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. It's too unpleasant, you see. So, yeah, you, you know, you, you, unfortunately, to, to really, if you only want truth, very few folk want real truth, you know. They want a sanitized version of something that will suit their personality and their psyche. That's not what truth is. It's like gravity. It doesn't care, if you're, it doesn't care what you want. It just is. So if you really want truth, you've got to look at the, the dark side of everything, too. Because only that way could you ever, ever possibly prevent it all happening. Again, again, again. And at least you'll see it coming. But uh, I have to say that humanity has not progressed at all. We live under, under illusions, in a world of illusions, where, where it's, it's been forced to work for nothing by slave masters in a camp, or forced to work for a system in which we have no choice at all, or you starve to death for something called money that's run by people you'll never meet, who decide its value every day, who decide that you're going to be trained to believe in it because they give the grants out and tell you that the school systems, the standardized school systems, what they teach you and brainwash you with. Your reality is given by them too. Save up. What's the point of saving up money when it's going to be worth a fraction of, it, of what it was when you put it in the bank? Fraction. Rate inflation. 
Everything's a racket, folks. Anyway, you can help me out. Remember, buy the books and discs at CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com or you can donate to me as well. You can find out how to do it at CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com or AlanWattsSentinel.eu and help me take along because it's really murder here right now. I say there's been no winter, no summer at all. It's all winter. And uh, seeing the sun is a rarity. I've only seen it a couple of times, two or three times this year. Uh, and now I've already got uh, night. It's now the freezing temperatures already, which is unheard of. But we know what's to do with their uh, their uh, chem spraying and the, the or they call it geoengineering, which is this routine weather control. Now it's routine, daily routine. We live in uh, illusions, and we don't want to see the bad side of things. They say the naive are the first to go, isn't? Don't they? They crack up because they can't handle the bad news when actually anything bad actually really happens. They live in the Disneyland. That's that's it. They choose it, in fact. But it's up to you where you want to be. Remember, as I say, send me a, a few pennies here and there. Help me to get by here. And uh, I live a lot lower standard than most of you out there. And it's my own fault. I, I do this by choice. I wanted to come out and, and really wake people up. Uh, a lot of talk show hosts of me stacks of videos using my stuff and um, the material. So at least I've changed the way the whole thing was going quite a few years back and brought more information on the table, which has to be discussed now. From Hamish myself from Ontario, Canada, it's good night. And may your God or your gods go with you. <laughs>